Welcome back, Heming Brainiacs, to the Heming Brainiac podcast of excellence. We're talking about Book 3, Chapter 18. Uh, and then I'll be reading you the Ander Lewis translation of Chapter 19, which, by the way, is the final chapter of Book 3. Can you believe that? I guess it's a short book, only 19 chapters. But, um, yeah, that did seem to go really quickly. Whoever keeps giving me awards on my um, chapter things. Every time I submit a chapter, just about every time, it gets an award, gilded. Um, and I thank you for that. I don't even really know who's doing it, but um, it's awesome. Thank you for that. Um, Rostov has his chance with the Emperor, but at the last moment, his newfound bravery fails him. What do you think happened? How do you think Rostov will think about this moment in the future? Yeah, was it his bravery that failed? I guess it probably was. You could say it like that. He, um, I mean, he's been very brave. That chapter and the previous chapter, him riding through the battlefield on a mission to find the emperor or the commander-in-chief proved his bravery, um, I think. I think he's just lost his nerve there at the end. It's almost like he's too shy, I think is what it is. He's too shy to speak to the emperor. Ripster 66 says, Poor Rostov, to come so far and face his fears to actually manage to find the Emperor, only to wimp out at the last second. He idolises the Emperor and worries his message isn't worthy of his attention at his obviously difficult time. Rostov is still so young and approached his idol is too much for him. Approaching his idol is too much for him. I think he'll beat himself up about this for a while to come. One of those regrets that keeps you from a good night's sleep even years later. The scene on the bridge is devastating. Panic leads to the terrible idea of crossing the ice. I think the general would have warned against it if he hadn't been pulverised by a cannonball. I know how gory was that bit. His death prompts more panic and then catastrophe on the pond. This scene played out like a movie as I read it. I could envision this sort of panic and disaster in any war, modern or historic, when facing death from enemy fire, people will do anything to try and escape it. It was very powerful and horrific as an end to an already sad chapter. It was very full on and um, it is one of the moments that comes to mind so easily once you finish the novel and you think back of like, you know, the most vivid memories you have of the book. For sure, that pond was one of them for me. Although I did forget... <clears throat> I did forget that the general gets hit by a cannonball like right in the middle of that scene. <clears throat> I just remember them trying to cross the panic, you know, under cannon fire, under heavy fire from the enemy, and then the the pond, the ice breaks, and they're falling into that and being hit by bullets and cannonballs at the same time. But I completely forgot about the the, the general up on his horse getting walloped. Um, <clears throat> by the way, today's chapter, the final chapter, is a really good one as well. And um, I just I just finished doing the translation literally ten minutes ago, uh, and it was really fun to translate, and so I'm excited to read it to you. Um, but before that, we'll continue talking about eighteen. Warren Kovafifi said Rostov is now zero for two in achieving his heroic aspirations in this war. I think it's all just the reality of things just not being as easy as we'd like to believe. We often picture things so clearly in our heads about how we'd react in a certain situation. But once we're in the thick of it, the actual reactions are often much different. Maybe Rostov tries to elevate his station one more time before throwing in the towel. 
I think um, he took a suicide mission, you know. The, the people that gave him that message to deliver basically said, oh, he's not going to make that. Um, and he, well, he made it. He made it halfway there at least. He made it across the battlefield. He's still got to, I think, get back the other way. But it's funny that he did that, crossed through a battlefield, and then brave enough to do that, but then just to talk to his idol, no, can't do that. <laughs> not brave enough for that. Warren Kavafi also said, the scene on the dam was absolutely brutal. Things have been tepid in the descriptions of that previous battle, but Tolstoy really didn't hold back with this one. I couldn't imagine the horror of being stuck while people around you are being eviscerated by an onslaught of cannonballs. To top things off, an escape route appears, but ends up causing scores of desperate men to drown in icy water. Really, a horrible snapshot of what a disaster Austerlitz was. I forgot to mention that I thought it was an interesting move by Tolstoy in his depiction of Alexander and the Ditch. This is the Tsar of Russia who is technically the leader of the Russian military, the person who is sending people off to fight in the war. He can't even get across a ditch on horseback without someone to help him. It is interesting, isn't it? But I guess he's just a kid and a figurehead, you know. He was just born into that role and he's very young. And um, he's not, even though he is technically the leader of the whole army, they all answer to him at the very end of the line, he's still not really, like, qualified for that. And I think for the most part he defers to the commanders-in-chief, um, you know, and the, and the, the big players. But um, yeah, it was interesting to see him brought down to that level of just basically a kid on a horse who can't get across a ditch. Fragrant Squirrel 99 said, Even though I felt bad for Rostov that he chickened out, I was also shocked that seeing the Emperor wounded and in need of help, he didn't help him. Was he wounded though? I don't think he was wounded in the end. I'm not sure actually. Um, how could he just pass him by and not stop to help? I think he will be tormented by his decision for a long time. That last scene on the ice was so brutal. Affectionate Song 402 said, My heart broke for Rostov in that scene because it is just so relatable and human. He's so young, his idealistic feelings that put Alexander on such a pedestal. Again, I think of the older Kutuzov who's much more realistic and cynical. I think he might have regrets, although future events may change him. Yep, we can lose our nerve sometimes. Um, it is very human that he's just like, oh, I want to go up and say something, but I don't know, he's probably mostly scared of embarrassing himself, I suppose. All right, let's read the final chapter of book three, chapter 19. And like I said, it's the Andalus version, so I'm very excited to read this to you. All right, it goes like this. On the Prats and Heights, where he'd come a cropper with the flagstaff in his hand, Prince Andrei Bolkonsky was knocked unconscious in a heap on the ground, blood pissing out, whimpering like a hurt child. He kept whimpering until it was nearly evening, then he stopped and was still. He came to, not knowing how long he'd been out. Suddenly he remembered he was alive and a human, and felt the burning of a slash across his head. Where is it, that divine sky I never noticed before, but noticed big time today, was his first thought. Oh, and I never knew pain like this either, he thought, but I sure as shit do now. Man, I knew bugger all before today, but where the bloody hell am I? He listened and heard the sound of horses approaching and voices speaking French. 
He opened his eyes. Above him there was still the same blue sky, magnificent, the lofty clouds with, with between them the blue infinity. He didn't bother to turn his head toward the people who had, judging by the sounds of hoofs and voices, ridden up to him and stopped. It was Napoleon, like really the Napoleon, accompanied by two aides de camp. Bonaparte, riding over the battlefield, had given final orders to strengthen the batteries that were firing at August Dam and was taking a look at the dead and wounded left on the field. Fine fellows, remarked Napoleon, looking at a dead Russian grenadier, who, with his face buried in the ground and a blackened neck, lay on his stomach with an already stiff arm flung wide. The ammunition for the guns in position is exhausted, Your Majesty, said an adjutant, who had come from the batteries that were firing at August. Have some fetched from the reserve, said Napoleon, and having gone on a few steps, he stopped right at Prince Andre's feet, who lay on his back, with the flag staff dropped beside him. The flag was gone from the staff. It had already been snatched by the French for a trophy. That's a good death right there said Napoleon as he gazed at Polkonsky. Prince Andrei knew that the, man was that the man speaking was Napoleon and that he was speaking about him. He heard someone address him as Sire, but he was only vaguely aware of the words as someone is aware of a fly buzzing nearby. Not only did he not care to listen, but he took no notice of them and put them straight out of his mind. His head was burning, he felt like he was bleeding to death, and he saw above him the far-away majestic sky. He knew it was Napoleon, his hero, but at that moment Napoleon seemed very bloody insignificant compared with this moment he was having with the clouds and the sky. At that moment he couldn't care less who was standing over him, or what they were saying about him. He was just glad that people were standing near and that they could bring him back to life, because life seemed so beautiful to him now that now that he had today learned to understand it properly. He collected his strength to move slightly and utter a sound. Feebly, he moved his leg and uttered a weak little groan that made even him feel sorry for himself. Hey now, he's not dead, said Napoleon. Get this young man up and carry him to the dressing station. Having said this, Napoleon kept riding to go meet Marshal Lanes, who, hat in hand, rode up with a smile on his face to congratulate the Emperor on the victory. That's all Prince Andre caught. He fell unconscious again from the awful pain of being lifted onto the stretcher, the jolting while being moved, and the probing of his wound at the dressing station. He didn't regain consciousness again till late in the day, when with other wounded or captured Russian officers he was carried to the hospital. During the transfer he felt a little stronger and was able to look around and even speak. The first words he heard after he came to were said rapidly by a French convoy officer. We have to halt here. The Emperor will pass here in a sec. He'll want to see these gentlemen prisoners. There's a shit ton of prisoners today, just about the whole Russian army. He's probably sick of seeing them by now, said another officer. All the same, they reckon this one is the commander of all the Emperor Alexander's guards. said the first one, indicating a Russian officer in a white uniform of the horse guards. Volkonsky recognised Prince Repnin, whom he'd met in Petersburg society. Next to him stood a lad of nineteen, another wounded officer of the horse guards. 
Bonaparte fanged up to them at a gallop and skidded to a halt. Which is the senior? he asked, on seeing the prisoners. They named the colonel Prince Repnin. You are the commander of the Emperor Alexander's Regiment of Horse Guards? asked Napoleon. I command... I commanded a squadron, replied Repnin. Your regiment fulfilled its duty honourably, said Napoleon. The praise of a great commander is the highest reward for a soldier, said Repnin. It's my pleasure to give it, said Napoleon. And who, and who is the youngster beside you? Prince Repnin named the 19-year-old Lieutenant Suxelin. Napoleon looked at him and smiled. He's very young to be here meddling with us. "'Being young doesn't make you less brave,' muttered Suctolin, his voice faltering. Oh, "'Beautifully said,' replied Napoleon. "'Young man, you'll go far.' Prince André, who had been also brought forward to complete the show of prisoners for the Emperor to see, could not fail to draw his attention. Napoleon apparently remembered seeing him on the battlefield, and, addressing him, again used the term young man that he'd associated with Prince André. "'Well, and you, young man,' said he, how are you fe feeling, mon brave? Five minutes ago, Prince André had been able to say a few words to the soldiers carrying him in, but now he couldn't speak, only stare at Napoleon silently. All this nonsense which was so interesting to Napoleon was, to André, pointless. His hero seemed like kind of a dick now, all proud and happy to have won the battle compared to that lofty, lofty equitable and loving sky which he had seen and understood. He seemed so dickish that Prince André couldn't answer him. Everything seemed dumb and pointless compared to the stern and solemn train of thought that was stirred in his mind by his heavy blood loss, pain, and being nearly dead. Looking at Napoleon's eyes, Prince André thought how insignificant greatness was, how unimportant and impossible to understand life was, and how death was even less important and less understandable by the living. The Emperor didn't wait for a response. He turned and said to one of the officers, Have the gentleman attended to and taken to my bivouac. Let my doctor, Larry, examine their wounds. Au revoir, Prince Repnin. And he spurred his horse and galloped away. His face was lit up by smugness and pleasure. The soldiers who had carried Prince André had noticed his little gold icon which Princess Mary had hung around his neck and pinched it. But now, seeing their emperor showing such kindness to the prisoners, they quickly gave him back the holy image. Prince André didn't see how and by whom it was replaced, but the little icon with its thin gold chain suddenly was back around his neck, sitting outside his uniform. It'd be nice, thought Prince André, looking at the icon his sister had been so emotional about, emotional about giving him. It would be nice if everything was as simple and clear as it seems to be for Mary. One moment. As it seems to be for Mary, how nice would that be to know where to seek help in this life and what to expect after we're dead and buried? How chilled out would I be if I could just go, Oi, Lord, have mercy on me. But I've got no Lord to say that to, no power indefinable, incomprehensible, which not only can I not address, but I can't even express in words. The great all or nothing, he said to himself, or to that God who has been sewn into this amulet by Mary. There is nothing certain, nothing at all, except how pointless my own knowledge is, 
and the greatness of something incomprehensible but all-important. The stretchers kept moving. At every jolt he felt unbearable pain. His fever rose and he became delirious. Visions of his father, wife, sister and future son and the tenderness he'd felt the night before battle, the figure of that piss-weak and insignificant little Napoleon and above all these things, the divine sky. These were the main things that filled his delirious mind. He saw the quiet and peaceful life of Bald Hills. He was already enjoying that feeling of being home when that little Napoleon prick had turned up and relished in the misery of others and doubts and torments had followed and only the heavens promised peace. Toward morning all these dreams melted and merged together into chaos and darkness in his unconscious mind and took him to an oblivion that, in Napoleon's doctor's Larry's opinion, was more likely to end in death than recovery. He's a twitchy one, crook as a dog, said Larry. He won't make it. And Prince Andre, along with all the other fatally wounded men, was left in the care of the locals of the district. All right, there we go. Another chapter down for you. Another book down. That's the end of book three. Nicely done, everybody. Tomorrow we'll be cruising on into book four, which I cannot remember anything about so i'm excited for that all right thank you very much for listening i'll see you tomorrow